This is Michelle McKenzie, and welcome to the WTF Podcast, where we demystify entrepreneurship and the fog around funding. Did you know that 90% of venture capital goes to people who look alike and live nearby? Be Seen, Heard, and Funded is the tagline for 68 Capital, an early-stage $20 million venture fund shining a light on undercapitalized founders and innovators, founders with billion-dollar ideas but limited access to capital because of race, gender, sexual orientation, or proximity. 68 Capital is the first Indiana-based venture capital firm dedicated to investing in startups led by Black, Latino, female, and LGBTQ plus founders. My guest is Kelly Jones, 68 Capital co-founder, managing director, and the first ever Black female VC in the state of Indiana. She's also the co-founder of Be Nimble, a not-for-profit social enterprise with the goal of advancing diversity initiatives to create a fully inclusive tech ecosystem in Indianapolis. In this episode, we'll discuss why she started Be Nimble and 68 Capital, how she's making the VC funding ecosystem equitable for undercapitalized founders, how she identifies talent to invest in, her fundraising journey for 68 Capital, five key pieces of advice for Black tech founders who are getting ready to fundraise, and what worries her, if anything, about the downturn in VC investment and what gives her hope about the current investment ecosystem. Kelly, welcome to the WTF Podcast. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I'm happy to have you. You believe there is an opportunity to truly level the playing field when it comes to capital access for diverse founders in any industry. How is 68 Capital helping to do this? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of you know, the issues around access to capital is is one part sort of access versus information and then also representation, right? You know, the access part is, you know, we hear about all these things, but we're not necessarily told how to access them. We're not told how to get to it. And a lot of times we like to keep it, you know, under a, a veil of mystique because, you know, it eliminates how many people are actually going after it. So I definitely think VC is one of those areas. Like it's this thing you know about, But it's like, how do I get it? What kind of business do I have to have? Does it only have to be tech? You know, and so a lot of the work that we do is around demystifying that, right? Like, what does it mean to be a venture backable company? What do these words mean? How do you apply them to your business? Do they have this stuff doesn't have to go over people's heads? So I think that's one part of of a lot of the work that we're doing, making this stuff approachable for people. Translation. I think the other part of it is representation, right? People that understand problems that are there and are, are, you know, world in business and in health, wherever, and being able to see it as an opportunity because you understand and identify with it because of who you are, how you grew up or, you know, your culture, right? And so when you have more people that are actually able to understand that, the opportunity for seeing something as being, you know, something that can grow like crazy increases, when the majority of venture capitalists in this case are, you know, I think almost 90% white men, if I come to you with an idea that is about something that's specifically in the Black or African-American community that you can't identify with, but maybe one of your Black partners can and see it as a, a true opportunity, that changes the likelihood that you'll get funded. And so I think a lot of what we try to focus our time on is how do we make sure that we kind of dispel the myths around this stuff and define some of these hard terms? And then how do we make sure we're showing up in a space where we feel like we can advocate for people because we understand the problems that are being solved? 
recognizing those barriers around access and language and understanding how it works, what is 68 Capital doing differently than other VC investment firms? I think that's a great question. You know, one thing that I'm extremely proud of is is even how our social looks. You know, I go to our LinkedIn, I go to our Instagram, and I see the way that we talk about this work. I think a lot of times, and and this is obviously no dig to anyone, but, you know, a lot of times you go, you know, to a VC's Twitter or, or their Facebook or their LinkedIn, and they're just talking about what they're doing and what they accomplished and what, you know, how great their portfolio companies are, which I think you should also celebrate. But we spend majority of the time defining terms giving tips. You know, if you're thinking about raising, you know, here are the metrics you should be thinking about. If you're thinking about getting follow-on investment, these are the the milestones that you should be thinking of hitting so that you can make sure that you have a high likelihood of being able to get that follow-on funding. Like these are things that are not, they're being told to people in meetings, you know, they're being told to people like in the accelerator programs, they're being shared with people, you know, as you, you get, you know, your mentors and things like that. And I think we hear the, the quote a lot, like, you know, black founders, especially are like over mentor, underfounded or underfunded. And for me, it's like, okay, well, let's just make sure we put it all out there. Like it shouldn't have to be a secret. And so the majority of our social, while it's one part, you know, funny memes, it's one part, you know, celebrating our portfolio, I would say it's probably majority the definition of terms and, and trying to make those things relevant to people, no matter what market they're in. I can attest to that in terms of your socials being very informative. So I follow your page, the 68 Capital page on Instagram, and I am constantly resharing your posts in my stories because they're so informative. For the listeners, make sure if you're not following 68 Capital on Instagram and other social media to make sure that you do so to get informed and to get that information that's breaking down these terms and breaking down the barriers to language for better understanding and uptake of what these things mean. 100%. And thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. I mean, you're helping me (laughs) because it's good information. I'm like, oh, this is good. I should reshare this. Yeah. How do you identify talent to invest in? Man, that's such a good question because it varies. You know, we consider ourselves a pre-seed and seed stage fund, which means we're mostly investing at the earliest stages. While we are a generalist fund, meaning we invest in all sorts of industries, you know, we have those areas that we like a lot. I can tell you our portfolio is made up of ed tech, HR tech, fintech, creator economy, CPG brands, direct to consumer brands, marketplaces. It's like it runs the gamut. But one of the things that I see that has a lot of connected tissue is a focus on media and entertainment and sort of the backbone of of entrepreneurship. So things that support entrepreneurs, obviously like culturally competent items, you know, whether that's for people with specific races, you know, we, we have a body care line in our our portfolio that I think is useful for everyone, but it's it's made by a black woman. So of course it's gonna take brown skin into consideration. You know, we have a period care brand in our portfolio that's specific to women and women's health, right? So there's these undercurrents of solving problems in cultures and females and backgrounds that um, need those supports. And then I think, you know, the th- when we're looking at it as like business on paper, I guess that's more of the soft stuff, right? Business on paper, you know, we're looking at revenue, right? Like, are they already generating revenue or are they on a path to revenue generation? You know, are they in a market that has, you know, a lot of people in it or a lot of opportunity for that that business to do well? Is the team made up of people that we think can take that thing to the promised lands or, or is the right team to get this to grow? You know, and I think 
all of those things kind of put together, you know, lets us know whether or not it's something that that we want to invest in. I think in addition to that too, though, it's can we help this company? Because I think writing a check is great. You know, the money is needed, but like, can we also provide value? Because I see VC and VC investing as as a two-way street. Both of us have skin in the game, right? Like, you need this investment in order for your business to grow. You know, I want your business to grow because it means returns to, to our investors. And so that means we both need to make sure this thing succeeds. And so if we don't know if we can provide assistance or help, you know, a lot of times we'll see if we can or, or find people that we, we can connect them with. And if we don't feel like we have it, like I'm sometimes not willing to make that investment because I want to feel like we can give them something. Right. I don't think empty money is enough. So there's a lot of things, you know, and I think as we go deeper and deeper into a business, there's other things that we look for, too. But those are some of the things that I look for first. I think the part about the support in addition to the money is a really critical piece and that that support is also culturally competent, right? Absolutely. Because you could probably get money someplace else, but if that wraparound support that comes with the money is not culturally competent, it could be potentially damaging to the business because you could get led astray because whoever the advice is coming from doesn't really understand how to do it in a culturally competent way, depending on the type of business, right? That might be sort of more deeply rooted in culture if it's something like skincare or hair care or something like that. That's specific to communities of color. Yeah, no, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I also think that that's another layer of that representation that we're talking about too, right? Having someone in your corner that you trust that, you know, you know, you can ask those uncomfortable questions to <laughs> because they understand where you're coming from, right? Like those things are, are layered so deeply. Yeah, I think you hit it, hit it right on the head. And I think another thing, and I don't mean to extend the, the question or the answer to the question is, you know, alongside that lack of trust is also for us, at least like we want to make sure that our companies are not overly diluting themselves, right? Are not giving up too much ownership, are, you know, taking advice, but being, but yielding advice at the same time too. Because the, the other part of it, the unsaid part of this is, you know, I'm here because this is something I'm passionate about, but also I'm here because I believe in generational wealth for the community. And so I want to make sure that we're not only building businesses that are going to be successful, but that our entrepreneurs who are also learning this stuff as they go are, are properly protected too. So they don't lose control of their business so that they don't end up in situations that could put them, you know, in harm's way. And I think that extra layer is important too, because those are things that we have to learn on the job. Those aren't things that we are told many times. Your funding thesis is very specific and intentional about supporting diversity and inclusion. Tell me about your fundraising experience for 68 Capital. Did your fund benefit from the momentum of generosity for funding Black and diverse funds following the protests of 2020? Yeah. So, so I think the, the first thing is I can tell this story from both sides. Like I call it pre-pandemic and post-pandemic because we started raising pre-pandemic and it was extremely hard. Like, I mean, I was having a hard time getting any bites, right? You know, if it was not an initial person that was interested, it was why just black and brown, you know? And, you know, so it was those questions, right? And then 
you know, I'd gotten a couple, I had like my first commitment or my first person that like literally said like, yes, I'm going to do this, you know, was a mentor of mine. And, you know, he's, he's black and, you know, had been in the game a long time and just really wise. It was like, you know, I tried to do this 30 years ago and couldn't get it done. Like, I want to support you. Right. And so I was like, okay, I got something right for me. It's like, okay, if I get one, I can get two. I get two, I can get five. You know, my background is in sales and marketing. And so the thought of sales is something that I naturally gravitate towards because I think one part of it is storytelling. And then the other part of it is taking, you know, what it is that you're trying to do and make it make sense for the person you're talking to. And so I just knew like, if I can get one or two, I can probably get 10. So I kept on the journey. I ended up leaving my job. I was working at Techstars running a accelerator at the time. And it was right before the pandemic shut everything down. And so at first I thought it was maybe the worst decision I made because why would I leave my job during, you know, this time, but it actually ended up being the best thing that I ever did because I got a chance to, again, focus on one, you know, what's now 68. It actually had another name when we first started raising in 2019, but also meant that I could focus on our nonprofit, which was really, you know, around supporting entrepreneurs and, you know, upskilling talent and and like really like working on the strategy of what that looks like growth wise over the next few years. So I got to do the both things simultaneously while they also worked together. Right. And then, you know, obviously things happen with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. And the it was exposed that the black community has been struggling, you know, forever. But like now, because of the pandemic, we've been struggling even more. And, you know, then we started to get the organizations and and the corporations and all those that were starting to make very targeted efforts around equity. And I think at that point, it was right place, right time, right? Like we were already in market, we were already doing it. You know, I have other friends, you know, that are also black fund managers that were also raising at the same time as we were, and we're also struggling. And so one of the things we talk about often is it took a tragedy for us to like get access to the things that we've been begging for, for years. And that's something that we'll never forget. In that journey though, I was told a lot of stuff. I was told once, you know, that if my fund failed, no one would ever want to invest in black or brown entrepreneurs ever again, which is like, do you say that about all of the, you know, hundreds of thousands of white led VC firms that are in by, you Well, know, let's invested. talk about dude that just raised Listen. 350 million after failing yeah like straight fraud right clearly no no one said that to him right because they turned around and gave him 350 million you know he's a genius he's a maverick you know and the crazy thing about that too is like not only like did he get a second chance right like which is great we don't get second chances let's be clear right we he got a second chance but he got a second chance in the exact same industry doing almost the exact same thing like it's actually makes me sick to my stomach most times when I think about stuff like that. But yeah, like that's a great example at the time. But those were like thousands of other examples just like that before too. And so I remember that and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna just keep that in the back of my mind, right? Like someone told me if this fails that, that all black founders are, you know, are in for it. That's like, that couldn't even be true if it wanted to be, but whatever. That was one, that's one I hold very close pretty often. You know, the other is those commitments or those that invest in your fund, you know, that was a moment in time right? That's a moment in time because it was equity, you know, essentially like what, what I'm doing is charity, right? Or what we're doing is charity. And we know it's not right. The one thing that you can't ever back down from is a performing portfolio. And so whether it was charity or not, whether it was, you know, a performative gesture or not, if my portfolio performs, you're going to invest again, because that's how capitalism works. 
Because money talks and everything else walks. Yeah, not fortunate for us, but, you know, fortunate for hopefully my founders that are going to perform regardless, right? Like, and, you know, right now we're 13 companies in, about to be 13 companies in, and our portfolio is doing really well, you know, like really well. Probably I would put it up against any portfolio that is performing well. Like I feel good about that. And so whether it was performative, whether it was a moment in time, whether everything fails, the one thing I have confidence in is that the majority of the people that invested the first time will invest the second time. And so for me, it's about performance, whether it was performative or not. I'm speaking with Kelly Jones, 68 Capital co-founder and general partner. Kelly's also the co-founder of Be Nimble, a not-for-profit social enterprise with the goal of advancing diversity initiatives to create a fully inclusive tech ecosystem in Indianapolis. Now, Kelly, would you want all of your current investors back if you did another <laughs> fund? Of course I would. Of course. <laughs> of course you, you know, would. I, because I you I would have made them money and they would yeah. want to come back. Yeah. I mean, you know what, though? Like, I got to choose. You know, like I was intentional with the folks that I have. Like, I, you know, I don't know. Some of them I may not ever know if they were performative or not. You know, I'll, I'll never know because I don't I don't get treated that way. But, you know, I would say absolutely. Like, I, they have been nothing but helpful. They have supported everything that I'm doing. They support our portfolio companies and even bringing them in as, you know, potential customers for those that are corporations and things like that. So I, I just... I've had a ton of support, so I can't even, yeah, I wouldn't believe that I'd I not take anyone's <laughs> money. If so they you've got that. excellent investors, but you know, I, I, saw, <laughs> I saw a post on, like I tell you, I'm always on the 68 Capital Instagram, right? Mm-hmm. And I saw a post that says, it read, two years later, has anything changed? Mm-hmm. This was in reference to two years since the brutal public murder of George Floyd and two mm-hmm. years since, according to the Post, companies miraculously woke up and started pledging commitments after commitments to creating a more diverse and forward-thinking society inclusive of all backgrounds. What is your response to the question, has anything changed? Is it just a theater in terms of the money being given or are you seeing something that suggests that also that the level of giving will continue? Yeah, I think that's a great question. One, I will say, you know, that the the amount of conversation we were having around equity inclusion, you know, from 2020 to where we are now has definitely decreased. Like, I think it's definitely still talked about maybe. And again, we were doing this work five years ago, right? Six years ago. So for me, it's always been top of mind (laughs) for the conversation. And maybe because I have conversations about it all day, every day, like I feel like I see a lot of it, but I I can say for the public perspective, there is a lot of, it's gotten a little bit more quiet. And we also don't know if everyone has reacted or has actually performed on the things that they've, they've said. I also think that we have to give time, right? I always say, even in the work that we do around equity inclusion, like we're trying to solve 400 years of worth of like problems, right? Like that, if you expect that to be done in six months, like, come on, it's just not, not going to happen. And like the trial and error has to be there. And, you know, if people want to do better, they have to do the work to be better. You know, I think what is happening though, and, and something that I'm really encouraging is 
yeah, you should do better. Sure. But like, what about all of the black led companies and organizations and things like that, that need support that need to continue to be uplifted? Because I think those are the people that are going to solve these problems. Those are the people who are going to reverse a lot of that work. And so I think if we can continue to pour those resources into the community and into the organizations and the funds and all of those things that are directly serving that community to build the equity, like I feel like we'll continue to see some change. I also think we also just need to give resources directly. Like, you know, I think we want to do everything but give the resources directly to people. (laughs) And I don't know what that's about. I'll blame capitalism again, but, you know, I don't know why we can't just solve the problem. Like the problems are easy to solve. Like they all have very easy solutions and we should just solve them. But I do think there's there's been some quieting down. I don't think everyone's done what they said they would. I think for us as a community, we have to decide, do we want to wait on that? Or do we want to just continue to do what we need to do to make sure that we're solving the problems for ourselves? Because no one else is going to do it for us. I don't think there's time to wait. So I think you just got to go forward and do what you got to do. You talk about shaking the tech table. How does your nonprofit Be Nimble help shake the tech table? And how does it intersect with 68 Capital? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I started Be Nimble. I moved it. Starting Be Nimble is what actually made me move back to Indianapolis. And I had been doing a lot of this similar work when I was not in Indianapolis. I'm from Indiana, but spent most of my career on the coast, worked in tech, built a company, moved to the West Coast, you know, walked at startups, like really got to see so much and, and did a lot. And so even being able to bring back that knowledge to the place that I was born and raised, I think is, is huge. You know, I think as an organization, you know, the, the first thing I noticed when I came back and and Indianapolis is considered an emerging tech hub, you know, but everything I would go to that was around diversity and inclusion was really focused on women. And so I would go to it and I would be a woman, I'd be there and there'd be other women there, but I'd always be the only black woman, you know, or maybe it was one other. And so I was like, okay, like there's still, you know, and I, we had already built the organization at this point. So I was like, okay, there's still issues around equity. So like, the first conversations we were having was like, yeah, what about black and brown people? Like, what about like racial equity too? Like diversity and inclusion is more than just women. And it's certainly more than just white women, right? Like we have to mine the color gap, right? So then the conversations, you know, with other groups expanded to, you know, whether it's, you know, Asian, Middle Eastern and all that and all those groups too. And I'm still like, but yeah, but like black and Latinx people continue to be like, the lowest on the totem pole when it comes to like access to resources and like in tech fields and all that sort of stuff. So like, why are we not choosing to focus? So we, we chose to like triple down on it. And you know, the, our entire organization became focused on black and brown people, black and Latinx people specifically. And so we focus on talent development. So we train and upskill talent and place them into jobs in the tech sector. And then we also support entrepreneurs through our accelerator programs. You know, how the two connect, I mean, I think are pretty seamless. You know, that becomes our early pipeline. We're working with companies from idea stage to MVP, MVP to first round of funding. You know, we're, we're upskilling and training talent. And, you know, when we're investing in 68, you know, our first investment was a company that went through our programs, right? Like, that that direct pipeline is happening. But then when they get that investment, the first thing that companies have to do is hire. And so if there is an issue with diversity and inclusion in the hiring space, the fact that we now have, you know, hundreds of, of potential students that, you know, are now trained in some of these roles to come in and work in sales or work in product or be a developer, right? And they're representative and they're working for CEOs that look like them. 
And that for me is like the full circle of like what this really looks like. So they were built to be, you know, sisters or cousins or whatever you want to call it. And they will continue to be, but they are, I mean, they're two separate entities, but they obviously work very closely together. And I think will allow us to really build an ecosystem that is truly diverse, right? Because we're not, we're focusing on talent. We're focusing on the companies. We're focusing on the funding. And so we have a little, a little pipeline thing happening over there. <laughs> That's so nice. Building. It's a nice segue into my final question, which mm. is what are five key pieces of advice that you would give to black tech founders or any industry, mm-hmm. in, you know, who are getting ready to fundraise? Yeah. Great question. Always. One, make sure that you know the problem you're solving better than anybody else. And I'm going to do the quick version of this. I would say two is what I always tell my founders. The moat is where the money is. So, you know, I think when we think about competitive advantage, we always think about, oh, our competitors this and our competitors that. And while I think you definitely ignore your competitors, you also pay attention, right? Because you want to be able to know and see what it is that they don't have. And that is what you want to feel for. Um, I think sometimes people see competition and think, oh, well, that's, they're doing that already. So, you know, maybe we should do something else. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, if they're doing it, that's cool. But at least that validates the business model. But like, what aren't they doing? Right. So I always feel like the money is made where the moat is, where the, where the distance between your competition. So that's my favorite thing to say. So the, the money is where the moat is. Your team is the, the most important part of this work. Now, when you start, you know, you're probably a team of one, <laughs> maybe a team of two. But when you do build that product and you get it to MVP and you get, you know, some pilots and you're ready to raise like actual capital, think about who you need surrounding you, right? A strong financial person. If you are, it also depends on the industry, but that team is also very key to the quickness of your growth. If you don't have the right people in the right seat, it will stunt your growth. So I think that's probably one of the, the more important things as well. You know, I think mind the cap table is key. I'm big on understanding ownership. You know, I think one of the things that the Black community especially is scared of is when you talk about equity, it feels like you're taking everything from us. And something that that Nas says, Nas is my associate at at 68, and and something I say as well is, you know, this idea of do you want 100% of a grape or do you want, you know, 80% of a watermelon? And I think, you know, in most cases, we would probably take the 80% of the watermelon. But I also beg people to think about don't just take a bunch of money and capital and dilute yourself too much where you don't have control. Because the, the ease in which you can be ejected from your seat especially as you grow, increases the more money you take. And so always mind your cap table. And I would say the last thing is if you're not building for profitability, what are you building a business for? I think something that that has been issue, I think personally in in VC is, you know, this idea that like, oh, you know, like it's about revenue, but it's also about, you know, valuation. True, it is, you know, you're in the purpose of VC is to invest in a space that may not grow a lot of revenue, but can grow market share and, you know, therefore valuations go up. But I'm like, business one-on-one says you shouldn't be building a business on a deficit. So, you know, while you may not be breaking even, or you should at least have a road to that because raising money shouldn't be the only thing getting your business across the finish line. That is why we see failures in these large, large companies is because they've built the company on the back of raising a ton of capital and not actually building a 
business that is truly financially sustainable. And so if you don't at least have a road to profitability, it's really hard to, to convince me. And so I think that's why when we're looking at companies, I'm big on, okay, what does revenue look like? Okay, well, if you're not making revenue, what does the path to revenue look like? And I don't always think I expect our businesses to break even or, you know, turn into that. You, you really don't need to write. But I would hope that if you did and you were able to sustain your business without raising more capital, you get to keep more ownership and your investors get more money if you end up exiting. So not relying on the capital, I think, is, is probably the most important part. Kelly, you brought it. Thank you so much for that. And I hope that the listeners had their pen and paper out. I don't know if you saw me taking notes. Hopefully they were taking notes. And I just want to say thanks again for stopping by the WTF podcast. Thank you for having me. You are most welcome. And to the listeners, I hope you took some notes. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. And I always say, don't keep good content to yourself. So if you enjoy it, make sure that you share it with others and make sure you rate, review, and do all that good stuff on a podcast or wherever you consume your podcast. Please subscribe on the podcast new home on the Alive Podcast Network. And make sure that if you have anything to share with me, make sure you reach out to me via where's the funding at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at where's the funding underscore podcast. There's also a podcast page on LinkedIn, where's the funding podcast and follow me, your host, Michelle J. McKenzie on LinkedIn. Join me next Friday for another episode. <laughs>